we will be in the book of First Thessalonians. We'll continue on in First Thessalonians this morning. And starting in chapter 2, verse 17. So First Thessalonians 2, 17. You know, the world is smaller today. Not really, right? I don't actually mean that the world has gotten smaller, but it does feel that way. It feels that we are much closer. I mean, at least if we want to communicate with someone, right, we have multiple avenues to do that. We can, um, we can send text messages, phone calls, uh, video calls, uh, TikToks or, you know, something like that too. If you're into that kind of thing, you know, a hundred years ago, you look at it, you, you had the telephone, but, uh, you know, you had telegraph too, and, uh, you had letter. Those were the means. Um, soon we may have the metaverse and we can go metaversing into it, uh, whatever that may look like. I, I feel like I'm starting to turn into an old man because I'm like these kids and they're crazy, crazy things. Uh, but, you know, we, we have me- multiple means, more means than we did a hundred years ago. And think about it 2,000 years ago, the means of communication, the methods of communication, there were just two. You could travel and see someone, or you could send a letter, right? There wasn't really much means other than that. And this is where we find our missionaries in our passage today. They have a longing for the believers in Thessalonica. They have a longing for the joy and glory and hearing about the perseverance of the church, their faithfulness. And for us, what I want us to see this morning, that the Christian's longing is for joy and glory and steadfast, faithful fruit. And so let's turn to our passage. Let's see the the heart of these missionaries, their longing, uh, starting in verse 17 of chapter 2. And we'll go through verse 5 of chapter 3. But this is the word of the Lord. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And so this is the word of the Lord. The church in Thessalonica, remember, is a church under threat. They're being persecuted by their own countrymen for their belief. We saw that last week, right? That that in the churches in Judea, they were persecuted by the Jewish people. And now we see here, even in uh, Thessalonica, the Thessalonians are being persecuted by their own people. And Paul, Silas, Timothy, they left the church under the threat of persecution. Right? They left because persecution came upon them. The rabble of the city was stirred up 
And their only recourse was to leave. And so they did, and they continued their missionary journey so that other places could hear the gospel. But this separation from the church doesn't mean that the missionaries stopped caring for them. No, instead, they continued to love. They continued to care for him. And Paul's letter here, right, is evidence of that. Thessalonians is a letter of love to a church. Indeed, this is surely what we see in their longing for the church, in the language here in our passage, that there is a longing for the church because they love this church, this people. And so let's start by seeing their longing to see, and we see that in verses 17 to 18, a longing to see. And Paul begins and says, but since we were torn away from you, right? This is, this is emotional language that Paul is using here, right? To be torn away. In the, in the Greek, uh, it is to be made an orphan of. So what Paul is saying here is that the, the, separation from the church, the separation from the Thessalonians, uh, that it wasn't of their choice. It was a decision that was forced upon them. And this is evocative language here, strong language. His feelings towards this church is not one of coldness. But even you can feel a, a sense of the sorrow he has. Right? He didn't come in blasting in like a fire, right? Blasting in. And then suddenly when things got difficult, it was like, I'm out. See ya. Right? No, he loved them. He cared for them. He still cares for them. They were bereaved of each other's presence, but for a short time, right? He says, brothers, I, I love you. I would, I was torn away from you for a short time. And notice what he says there in verse 17. In person, not in heart. In person, not in heart. We're separated by distance, by physical distance. But don't think that that physical separation equates to a separation of a feeling, of love, of, of emotion, of presence. And indeed, how did Paul open his letter? In 1 Thessalonians 1-2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, right? So even though they were separated by distance, what he is saying is the church is constantly in their prayers. They were giving thanks before God for their faithfulness constantly, constantly, right? Constantly, Paul was praying for their grace and their peace. And you can feel the longing in this verse, right? Continue on. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, Right, we endeavored, we strived, we we sought after it. We wanted to see you face to face. We wanted to be back in your midst. We wanted to be back in Thessalonica. We wanted to serve you, the people of this church. And Paul's writing this letter, right? Because this is the next best thing that he has. Right again, he's not going to be able to get on a, a satellite conference with them, a Zoom meeting. Right. He can't do that. And so he's doing the best that he can. He longs for them and he has no other recourse. And he wants to see them face to face. I notice that face to face. And let me briefly note here, face to face is so important. Um, one thing that studies about social media uh, and what technology does in our day and age uh, 
it makes us more connected in some ways, but everything that those studies tend to show is that it actually disconnects us from one another. And that by neglecting the face-to-face time with one another, we're actually worse off. Worse off than when we were not texting and phone calling one another every day, right? So tech is fine, and it's good in a pinch, but it's a poor substitute for face-to-face. And as a church, that's something that we have to realize as well, right? We need to meet together in person. There is no such thing, there is no such real thing as an online church. A church is a people who covenant together and meet together in person. God has created us for us. He has called us to this, right? This is what God has called us to, to meet together. But why didn't Paul just take the first train to Thessalonica then? Right? If he cares so much, if he longs to see them face to face, why isn't he there? Um, and we see that in verse 18. He answers that question, right? He says, because we wanted to come to you, right? Again, he says, I, Paul, again, again, we want this, but why didn't he? But Satan hindered us. He tells us that Satan hindered them in doing that. Paul, again, he has this deep desire, but the evil one is working against him. Uh, Calvin in his commentary says here that Satan is continually contriving by every means in what may, in what way he may hinder or obstruct the edification of the church. And his uh, encouragement there is that to say we today need to understand that Satan is continually striving to hinder or obstruct the edification of the church. The obstacles that had been placed before Paul were not neutral, right? He is separated from the Thessalonians, and that is not a neutral reality, but it's a reality, an outworking of evil purpose. Because remember, what is the church going through? Persecution. And what better way than to ruin this church than to separate them from a source of strength and encouragement for for to separate uh, true and sound doctrine and sound teaching and then maybe let loose the wolves to harass it. Understand again that the evil one is still doing this work today. He is seeking by every means possible to distract and divide and destroy the church. Why? Because it stands in opposition to what he's about. Because it stands to glorify God and to further the kingdom of God. And guess what the evil one doesn't want? Those things, right? Because he hates God. He hates his work. And we as a church need to keep that in mind. That the evil one, that Satan, hates what we are doing when we are doing what God has called us to. And so will there be trials and tribulations for those of us who try to work to further God's kingdom? 
Yes. And indeed, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 tells us, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our problem is not other people. Our problem is the evil one and his minions who are at work. And we ought to bear this in mind. We ought to consider this, but we don't need to fear him. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We probably heard that before, right? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is true. And we need to keep that in mind because there are times when it does seem that the gates of hell are prevailing against it. But we need to keep in mind that ultimately God is sovereign over all of these things. Even in the midst of our persecution, of our trial, of our tribulation, God is not, not God. So let me say that again because I did like triple negatives there, right? God is still God even in the midst of those things. And he is still sovereign. Go to the book of Job. And you can see how Satan has to ask God permission. We shouldn't fear him. Even Satan bows down to God. God in his divine providence will provide for us all that we need for life and godliness. He will preserve those who are his. He will hold us fast, as the hymn goes. So Paul has this deep desire to see the church. He's been hindered from it by Satan. He has a longing to see them, and he also has a longing for joy. Part of his longing for them is a longing for joy. Look at verses 19 through 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The missionaries wanted for this church in part because the church was a visible fruit of their ministry. It is a delight to these ministers to know that there is a good and faithful church that has sprung out of their efforts. Paul tells the Philippian church something similar in Philippians 4.1. He says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Right? And this boasting on Paul's part is not pride. It's not self-exaltation. Paul knows that ultimately God is the one who gives the growth. Right? 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It is God who grows. It is God who saves. Right? We don't save. Paul's not here saying, you're our joy and glory because we saved you. Because we, we bought your souls out of hell. No, Jesus did that, right? God did that. Paul is not taking credit for their faith. And indeed, you could go back to chapter one and you see how Paul says, we know, we are assured of this. 
right? Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. He doesn't say, we chose you, we saved you, but no, God chose you, God saved you, God loved you. So how is it that that he says these things? Why does he say, you're our glory, you're our crown of boasting? Because there is some reward for faithfulness. God does reward faithfulness. And the faithfulness of the missionaries is highlighted by the faithfulness of the church. To say it another way, the missionaries' obedience is seen, it's made visible, in the church's obedience. Peter, in his first letter, for instance, talks about how more broadly the faithful pastor is going to receive a crown of glory. In 1 Peter 5, verses 1-4. through So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of of glory. Right? So Peter there says, you as a shepherd, as an under shepherd, as a pastor, you have an unfading crown of glory if there is faithfulness in your ministry. So every faithful minister ought bear some longing for those whom God has entrusted to him. And as much as the minister has borne some fruit among them, so then there is to be had joy and a crown. This longing for joy is really a longing for faithfulness. Right? What Paul longs for them is for them to be established in their faith. That is his glory. That is his crown of boasting. Uh, It's it's kind of like the little child who gets so excited about a gift he's received or, or some some object and He goes and he runs and he says, look at what mommy gave me. Look at what daddy gave me. Isn't this exciting, right? Look, look, I got new pants. No, probably not, right? Not the little kid, but look look at what I got here. Isn't this exciting? And you can kind of picture that that's what Paul's saying here, right? Is Paul's saying, I can't wait to be before my Lord Jesus and say, have you seen the Thessalonians? Have you seen their faithfulness to you? Have you seen how they receive your word as as really your word, as God's word, not as man's word? And look at how it changed them. And look at how they live now among the people. And even though they're suffering, they're standing firm. Have you seen the Thessalonians? They're wonderful. They're great. Not because of anything in them, but because of what you've worked in them, right? Paul understands that. Paul knows that. This longing for joy is a longing for faithfulness. And and listen, for for myself, I want you to, to grow in Christ Jesus. I want you to be mature in Christ Jesus. I want you to be complete and ready for your bridegroom. I want you to enter into the glories of heaven, not with your head held low in shame, but with your head held high in the confidence of your Savior. What would our fellowship look like if we long for that in one another? If what we long for in joy 
It's not that just that we're some big happy family, but that we're a faithful family. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Famous verses here, right? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that stirring up is agitating. Let us consider how to agitate one another, but in a positive sense. That's right. That's why we use the word stir there. Agitate tends to be negative. But we want to stir one another up to love, to good works, to meeting together face to face. We're strengthening one another to the fight that is before us. And so for their part, the missionaries, right, they wanted to be back among them to make sure that they were strong enough to persevere in the face of persecution, right? The, they want the church to persevere because it shows something of their own faithfulness that they truly did preach the message, teach the message, encourage and disciple as best as they could under the circumstances, knowing that God is the one ultimately who gives the growth that they heard the gospel message and were faithful to preach the gospel message. They had a longing that the church would persevere. And we'll see that in verses 1-5 through of chapter 3. They had a longing to persevere. So Paul continues and says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. The bereavement of Paul with his spiritual children was a weight upon him. Right, the bereavement, the separation, the being torn away was a weight upon Paul. And so he says, when we could bear it no longer, when we were at our wit's end, as it were, when I could no longer stand the thought of not hearing about your progress in the gospel, he does the only thing that he could do. He sends Timothy. So he says that in verse 2, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Paul sends his ministry partner, Timothy, to them. And the idea here of what Paul is communicating, right, is he is saying that Timothy is not the B team. Timothy is not second rate. But notice what he says, right? When we were willing to be left behind, when we were willing to be left alone, when we were without Timothy. And understand, again, that's that's what he's communicating here, is that Timothy is so valuable unto Paul and unto Silas that it costs Paul to send Timothy. Sometimes in the workplace, you have those coworkers you would almost be thankful to get rid of, right? They add work to you. They don't help you in work, right? They add, add to you. You constantly have to watch, watch over them or you constantly have to watch out for them because they are a detriment to you getting your work done. They need assistance and they don't give any. But sometimes there are those coworkers who are worth their weight in gold because they are such a great help to you that you'd be lost without them, right? They, they provide assistance to you. 
They are great encouragement and strength for you. They help you do your job better rather than hinder you. And Timothy is of this latter variety. He is a great source of assistance to Paul. So Paul is not sending his leftovers to the Thessalonians. Paul is sending his choice meal to the Thessalonians, if we want to continue that analogy, which seems weird when you say it. All right. But Paul, Paul is sending the best. It's at great cost. Again, who, who is Timothy? What do we know of his character? Paul, again, in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, describes Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Right? You get the sense that Paul and Timothy are kind of like father and son. And this is not an estranged father-son relationship. Um, This is one of, of love and helpfulness and utility, right? Of worth. Timothy's a brother, right? That's what Paul describes him here to the Thessalonians. We sent Timothy our brother. He's a believer too. And God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. He's a faithful brother. And he's being sent, right? To the Philippians, he says he's a faithful son who's being sent to you. He's useful. And he is there to help the church, right? He says, to establish and exhort you in your faith. The end of verse 2 there. To establish and exhort you in the faith. Why? That no one may be moved by these afflictions, verse 3. But that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were, we are destined for this. Right? Timothy is there to shore up the faith of these believers that the afflictions that they're undergoing may not overwhelm them. When Jesus explains the parable of the sower, remember what he says of the seed that is sown into the rocky soil. Matthew 13, verses 20 through 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Sounds like a believer, right? Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution on arise, arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So immediately it springs up, but as soon as trouble comes, immediately he falls away. The, the plant dies, right? The reality is that there are those who sprout up for a season, but when hardship comes, they bounce, right? They leave. They get out of it. They leave because they have no real root in the gospel. And undoubtedly, that's part of what Paul's concern is for the Thessalonians. He knows that they're undergoing hardship. They're undergoing affliction. They're undergoing persecution. And he sends Timothy to them to help establish and exhort them to make sure that they truly understand the gospel. That their persecution that they're undergoing is not a sign, an evidence that they shouldn't believe the gospel. Right? We, we understand that there are those who think that way even today, especially in our culture, in our country, especially among Christians who think that when I come to Jesus, and they probably, they may have even heard this from a preacher, 
or so-called preacher, that when I come to Jesus, I won't have any of the troubles I used to have before. Everything's going to be good. I'm never going to have hardship. I'm never going to have struggle, right? Jesus fixes it all. Jesus is the great band-aid. He fixes all my boo-boos. And then as soon as trouble does come, as soon as they realize, start to realize the cost of what it means to follow Christ, what do they do? I was lied to, right? I was sold a bill of goods. I, there is nothing true about Jesus. And they walk away. Paul's concerned about the Thessalonian church because guess what? If that's true today, certainly was true back then as well. So he sends Timothy to them. He says, I, I sent the best that I have because I myself couldn't be there. I send the best that I have to establish and exhort you to make sure that you do not fall away. He wants them to persevere. He longs that they would persevere. He wants to remind them that all they are undergoing, that even he and his coworkers are undergoing, those things are not outside of God's will, right? What does he say Again, he says in verse 3, For you yourselves know that we, both you and I, that we are destined for this. For what? what is the this here? The afflictions he's talked about. Did you not be moved by these afflictions? That you know that we were destined for affliction. Consider, for instance, Paul's calling in Christ, in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, go. So he's saying this to Ananias, who is to go and to uh, basically uh, anoint Paul, uh, heal him of his blindness, baptize him, the, the, those kinds of things. The Lord said to him, that is Ananias, go. For he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. At the outset of Paul's life, new life in Christ, he says, don't you know how much you will suffer? Let him know how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. They were warned. So Paul says, you know, we are destined for this. This is not outside of God's control. And in verse four, he says, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as has it come to his past and just as you know. All right, Paul says, we warned you. We warned you. We told you. We said this is going to happen. Would Paul have good reason to believe that? One, God told him, right? One, God said, you're going to suffer affliction. But two, he's experienced it, right? Every time he goes in a city, what happens? He's driven out because he's persecuted for preaching Christ. It happens again and again and again. And so he says, we warned you, don't waver when it happens, but know that it's coming God is not being unfaithful to you as you undergo persecution. 
God has not abandoned you in the midst of your affliction. And this really is a topic too great to be able to unpack here. But God does allow his children to suffer in this world. He allows them to suffer affliction. And the best that I could tell you is go to the book of Job and read it. And you really won't find that much of an answer as to why God allows it. But he does allow it. And he is good and he is steadfast in his love and he is gracious and he is merciful even in the midst of our affliction. And we know that that coffee mug verse that we see in the Romans uh, chapter 8, for God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose, right? We put that on our little coffee mug and we say, isn't it great to just sit here and drink coffee? And then when difficulties happen, when we meet those trials, we say, how can God be working this for good? But he is, that's what the scripture says. We need to trust that he is true and good because he is true and good. And somehow we have to understand and accept and believe even what James writes in his letter, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And we know that trials, he says there, produces steadfastness. So God is working something in the midst of the affliction. We don't have time to look at it, but God is sovereign over and righteous in the midst of our affliction. And indeed, one of the means that God uses to help us in the midst of trial and tribulation is the church. That's why we need to be face to face. God has given us the church, given us one another because we are not alone. Again, notice what Paul says. In verse, end end of verse three, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We together, we kept telling you we were to suffer affliction. Verse four, affliction is shared in the church. Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians six, two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And to the Romans, he says in Romans twelve fifteen, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We in the church today must steal ourselves for this, to bear those afflictions that come upon us. There is a war being fought against us, not by flesh and blood, but a spiritual one. And it's a war all the same, right? There is battle, there is war, and we need one another to survive it. We need to encourage and exhort one another to stand firm in the midst of it. We need to stir one another up to love and to good works. We need the church. We need one another. That's part of the means that God uses. So let's avail ourselves of his gracious means. He continues on in verse 5. He reminds them, right? He says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer. Again, he couldn't bear it any longer. He said, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In Paul's day, this meant what was the means he had to help establish and exhort the church in Thessalonica? It was his coworker, his, his valuable friend, and brother in Christ, his son in the faith, Timothy. And so he tells the church, I'm sending Timothy to you. I sent him to you, not because I didn't think any less of you, but because I 
I, I feared. I was concerned that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Right? His concern was that the evil one would be successful in undoing his work. The tempter tempts. Matthew 4, 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right? We know what happens there. What does Satan do in the Garden of Eden? He tempts Adam and Eve. This is what the tempter does. He tempts. This is what the evil one does. He tempts. This is what he does today. He tempts us to make void our faith. He tempts us to undo the labor of others, to make it vain, like grasping smoke. Paul's concern, Paul's longing for the church is that they would persevere that everything that they had strived for, everything that they had paid, right, everything that they had worked toward would not be undone because of the persecution, because of the evil one, because of rabble who were being used by the evil one. And what we have heard in this book thus far is that they have stood firm, right? They have persevered. Paul's, Paul's doing an explanatory action here. And he wants to encourage them all the more. Because standing firm isn't about a single day. Faithfulness to God isn't about a single day. It's about a lifetime, right? It's about a lifetime. That, that it's not a matter, are, are you faithful today? It's, are you faithful tomorrow? And when is tomorrow not tomorrow? It's always tomorrow. Until your dying breath, your call in Christ Jesus is faithfulness to him. So Paul here and the missionaries, they had a great love for this church in Thessalonica. And even though they had been torn away from one another by persecution, this didn't lessen Paul's desire for this church. He wanted their faith to continue to grow, to be secure, especially because the Thessalonians continued to experience persecution there. It didn't leave, it, you know, it didn't suddenly stop when Paul left. Paul's great desire for the church is that they would grow in grace and godliness, that they would be steadfast in their hope in Jesus. And in Timothy's report, Paul could feel assured that thus far they had remained. But what of you, brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you growing in grace and godliness? Are you holding to the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ? It is my constant prayer that you would be presented as mature believers before Christ, that you would have a deep desire to know God's word, and that you would want to live out what God commends of you and commands you to do. Your faithfulness to Christ brings me joy, and your unfaithfulness grieves me, as that is true in my own life. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as though who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The author of Hebrews there says, Obey your leaders, not so that way they can wield power over you, but because they give an account for you and if they do so with groaning, that's not going to be an advantage to you. That's not going to be for your advantage. And understand that this should be true of any pastor over you, and you must make sure that it is so. Some of you who hear this, however, bring no joy in 
and you will not bring any joy because you have no faith. Your trust is not in Christ. You have no hope. And make no mistake that God still receives the glory in your life. But it will be in your just judgment, not in the grace of Christ for you. He will deal with you as your sins require. You will pay the penalty of your sins with eternal suffering under his divine frown. And yet, as you draw breath, you have the opportunity to turn to God and to be saved. You may yet know the love of God for you. Indeed, God himself asks Ezekiel, asks the people of Israel in Ezekiel, say Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty of his people's sins. Christ in love emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And without Christ's work, without believing in him, you will die and you will enter into God's eternal judgment. But if you repent of your sins, if you repent of the evil of your thoughts and deeds, if you turn to God, he will save you. You will enter into his eternal steadfast love. You will know the joy of God's salvation. You will be a joy and glory and a crown of boasting. So believe in Christ Jesus. Turn from your sins. Trust in the good news. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, How great you are that you would pay the penalty of our sins through the blood and the life of your Son, your only begotten Son. That you would do such. That you would pour out your Holy Spirit in us to regenerate us, to renew us, to give us new heart and a new life. That we may walk in holiness before you by and through the Spirit's presence and power. That we would be able to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Oh, Father, we long, we long ourselves to see our Lord Jesus. If we we have trusted in you, God, that, that is our heart's cry. Because we want to see the one, the lovely one, who suffered in our place. Oh, Father, we pray that your spirit would work in us and through us. Father, that, that this longing for steadfastness, for, for seeing it through to the end, Father, that we would have a, a firm and a steady faith to the praise of your glory, that we would be able to see you and worship you. Uh, Father, that we would be face-to-face with our Savior, that we would be face-to-face with all those who have gone before us, who have walked in faithfulness. And we would, with one voice, worship you and you only. Father, grant us the grace and the strength we need this day and this week to persevere. We suffer not maybe to the extent that the Thessalonians had to, to the extent that your, your, your apostle had to. But we 
recognize the trials and the tribulations that are before us. We recognize that the tempter is still tempting. The liar is still lying. The evil one is still doing his work in warring against us, against our souls, against our ministry, against this church. So, Father, help us and strengthen us and gird us for battle. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Send hosts of angels to uh, protect and guide us, to minister even as you have called them to that task. Above all, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified in us, your people. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.